0: So how many of you have been reading uh, Revelation this summer through our summer advance? Raise your hand. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, what a book. It's so timely. Uh, By the way, Pastor Milton, I don't know if you know this, he will be preaching through the book of Revelation after Titus. And so we're looking forward to that, um, Lord willing. I'm grateful that he gave me the go-ahead to preach from Revelation 19, even though he's going to be covering it in the year 2025. And um, so I'm just very appreciative of allowing me to get the, get the go. But let's go ahead and pray uh, before we jump into this wonderful chapter. Our Father, we thank you uh, for revealing to us your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for filling the beloved Apostle John to bear witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. May we be blessed as we read and hear the words of this prophecy. And we ask that you would enable us to keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. May we see with fresh eyes and hear with renewed ears from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, for it is he who loved us and freed us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to you, Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Open up with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. The book of Revelation was written by that beloved disciple, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, one of the three, right, Peter, John, and James. And John experienced the love of Christ and was knowledgeable of the love of Christ by immediate experience. We see the love of Christ dripping like myrrh from the epistles, right, from the gospel of John, which makes this book all the more jarring knowing that he wrote it, the apostle of love, The book of Revelation is classic, apocalyptic literature unveiling the future with symbols and images, much like Zechariah and portions of Daniel, portions of Ezekiel, which kind of freaks us out, right, as we approach it. Admittedly, there are complexities in this book, and um, as we study the topic of eschatology, generally, there are complexities, But I want to talk to you about complexities and problems that we are seeing in our country today at the crossroads of history in which we find ourselves. Problems that involve power, authority, government, race, racism, gender, sexuality, politics, history, and the list could go on. Uh, When I listen to some folks out there, uh, it all seems so easy To many people. And at times, I believe it. Just defund the police. No, blue lives matter. No, all lives matter. If you say all lives matter, you're implying that black lives don't matter. What I believe, uh, uh, I believe that black lives matter. I just don't ascribe to the goals of the organization black lives matter, someone says. Or, systematic racism is a myth or systematic racism is everywhere you're swimming in it that's why you can't see it turn your social media platform black to show you're on our side if you don't you show by your silence that you are part of the problem take a knee no bow to no one all christians should fight for justice that's the gospel don't you know Another says, social justice is a neo-Marxist perversion of the true gospel. The true gospel emphasizes proclamation over reclamation of culture. I don't know about you, but my head gets spinning at all the questions that we face. And I'm one of our elders, and our elders have actually been studying this issue for quite a while. And there's times where we just stare at each other in silence. These are not easy Issues and what complicates these issues is multifaceted. Let's remember some things that we all believe, those of us that are Christians here. We believe that we live in a fallen world, there is a real devil, and on earth is not his equal. We are sinners, even Christians haven't escaped their indwelling sin and the effects that sin has on our own minds and perceptions. Our culture has been teaching our young people for years now that there is no absolute truth, and now we are arguing about truth as if our side is absolute. We have been teaching that words have no objective meaning, yet we hear everyone debating the meaning of words as if there is real meaning that can't be discerned. We're dealing with epistemology. How do we know things? How do we know anything? Perception, hermeneutics. Amongst Christians, our millennial views factor into how we are interpreting Scripture, and it affects concepts like justice and the kingdom. And it can feel so complicated. Sometimes it feels like we're walking into a murder mystery in the middle of the movie. You don't know what's happened before, you don't know how far into the movie you are, and you don't know where it's going. I don't know about you, but since we've been on quarantine, I've been... On a Columbo kick, I know everybody is kind of watching their favorite movies and films. One of the things I like about Columbo is you see the murder before Columbo go- does. I know murder is disturbing, but go with me here. And you know he's going to figure it out. You're just waiting to see how he's going to figure it out. Uh, you get to see what he sees. You get to hear what he hears. And it's not a show that's built upon suspense, Right? It's more about, it's more built around the familiar tactics that Colombo uses to trick bad guys who underestimate his abilities and fall into his humble gamesmanship, right? And I just discovered this. In many episodes, you know when Columbo has figured out who the murderer is when you hear the tune, This Old Man. This old man. Da, da, da. Whenever he whistles that or you hear it, you know Colombo's figured it out. That's what I like about the book of Revelation, by the way. You already know who's going to win. The apocalypse is scary at times. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's horrible. But there's no doubt how it's going to end after all. It is finished. As believers, when life gets complicated... Uh, When we feel our love growing cold because lawlessness abounds. When you find yourself saying, How long, O Lord? When we find ourselves fearful, troubled, and even despairing, it's important to go to signposts that have been left for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. One of those signposts is the cross, where Jesus declared, It is finished. Another is the resurrection. Another is the ascension where Jesus promised he would return, right, for his bride. In Revelation chapter 19, the main signpost we see is the second coming of Christ. And there is no doubt who wins. In this book, the beloved apostle reports to us what he has personally seen and what he has personally heard. Remember, in the first epistle of John, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He saw and heard Christ in the first advent, and then he is taken up into the heavenlies, as it were, to see into the future, the second advent. In the book of Revelation, you see the word, the phrase, I heard 24 times. That's five times more than you see that phrase in any other book. And I saw 34 times. The next closest book is Ezekiel that has that phrase 10 times. And so what we have in the book of Revelation is John telling us continually, I heard, I heard, I heard, I saw, I saw, I saw. And these things are certain. Revelation 1.3 says this, Blessed is he who reads. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So this morning, we're going to read, and we're going to hear, and we're going to see with John's eyes the future. And as we do so, we're going to see that Christ wins the battle. Martin Luther says in his famous hymn, He Must Win the Battle. That's an English translation of German into the Elizabethan English that basically means it is certain. It is certain. He will win the battle. And so we're going to look really at five things that the beloved Apostle saw and heard, which will bless those who read and hear them and and keep them knowing that the time is, is near. You are meant to be blessed by this book. You are meant to be blessed this morning as we see and as we hear what the Apostle John has to tell us. Let's look at these five things together, starting with the first. Number one... John heard a roar of hallelujahs because of the judgment of the great harlot. John heard a roar of hallelujahs because of the judgment of the great harlot. Read with me starting in verse 1. I'm going to read from the New King James. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, "Hallelujah! salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God for true And righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him both small and great. We see here that John heard a roar of three hallelujahs because of the judgment of the great harlot. Notice in verse 1, it starts with after these things. This is a time marker throughout the book of Revelation. It happens seven different times, and it indicates something significant that is coming forward in this apocalypse, this revelation. Revelation. This harkens back to chapter 18, verse 20, where we are called to rejoice. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you apostles and prophets, for God has avenged on you on her. And so he says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. This multitude, in all likelihood, harkens back to chapter 7, where we see this multitude first Actually, the second time it's mentioned in chapter seven, verse nine, it says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people and tongues. So we've got people from all nations, tribes and tongues were probably also uh, involving perhaps heavenly bodies. And these are all given white robes, by the way, in chapter seven. And what is it that they say with a loud voice? They say, Hallelujah. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. They say it with a very loud voice. What's interesting is hallelujah only occurs four times in the whole New Testament, and the four times are in this chapter. I never knew that until this week. Would you have thought that hallelujah only occurs in the New Testament four times? These are the four times in this chapter. We see hallelujah in the Psalms. We see hallelujah in many different places, uh, 24 times in the Psalms. But it's right here you see these hallelujahs, these praise Yahweh statements with a loud voice three times in this context. This is meant to be in contrast to chapter 18 where the whole world is mourning the destruction of the harlot. They're mourning the destruction of great Babylon. In fact, Jesus Christ talks about how this would happen in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 when he says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will what? mourn. When Christ comes back, the earth will not rejoice, the earth will mourn. And at the destruction of Babylon, the great harlot, the earth will mourn, but those in heaven will rejoice and say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. This is the proclamation, this is the worship that is going on in heaven at the destruction of what is called the great harlot. By the, by the way, at this time in history when John was on Patmos, the Roman emperor was a man named Domitian and he took to himself the titles of Lord and God and the, those in heaven are proclaiming glory and honor to the Lord our God. They go on in heaven and they say for true and righteous are his judgments Because he has judged the great harlot. He is righteous. He is true. He will judge. And who will he judge? He will judge the great harlot. As you guys study the book of Revelation over the next few months, and as you read your commentary, you're going to find out that the great harlot is equivalent to Babylon the great. It's the entire worldwide political and economic religious kingdom of the Antichrist. You can compare chapter 19 with chapter 18. And you will see that there's a commonality between the harlot and the and great Babylon causing all of the nations to be drunk with the fornication. And they are all equally judged by the Lord. Wearsby says, quote, both the apostate religious system and the satanic economic political system laid by the world, or led by the world, astray and polluted mankind. Both were guilty of persecuting God's people and martyring many of them. If we see that they, the Lord, judges the great harlot, and 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 it says, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Christ will avenge upon the persecutors of his bride. He will cause vengeance to come down upon them. As Romans 12 tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is not ours to take. We as the bride of Christ, we do not execute vengeance. We do not bring vengeance upon this world and this culture in and of ourselves. We are not vigilantes. We await as with patience for the vengeance of God to come upon the wicked men and women of this world. And it will come. Verse 3, again, they said, Alleluia, this is the second Alleluia, her smoke rises forever and ever. Speaking of the eternal punishment where the great harlot will be in the lake of fire forever and ever. And worship is offered to God Almighty for this judgment. Then in verse 4, we have some other players that enter in and join their voices with the great multitude. Uh, It's described as the 24 elders in verse 4, and then later the four living creatures. I'll let you guys study on your own. I'll just say that the 24 elders are more than likely uh, 24 redeemed human beings around the throne who represent the rest of the redeemed. This is almost certainly the church. In the New Testament, elders is a church office. In the Old Testament, 24 uh, liturgical priests would represent the rest of the liturgical priests in David's kingdom. And while there is debate on this issue, in all likelihood, it's a reference to 24 representatives of the church who also fall down. Notice what they do. The 24 elders and the four living creatures think creations. When we hear the word creatures, that freaks us out, right? We watch too many movies. Creatures. It's really creations, four living creations. What do they do? They fall down and they worship God. You see them falling down and worshiping all over the book, right? Who sat on the throne and they add, Amen, Alleluia. This is the third Alleluia. Praise Yahweh. So the third Alleluia comes from the 24 elders and the four living uh, creations. Then in verse 5, then a voice from the throne In all likelihood, an angel said, Praise our God, all you His slaves, and those who fear Him, both small and great. What we see in verse 5 is when all of the multitudes are gathered before the throne, they will all be called slaves, and there will not be any distinction. All those who fear Christ, whether they are small, whether they are great, whether they are leaders, whether they are subjects, whether they are considered uh, those that rule over others or subjugated to others, they will all praise God and add their hallelujah, their hallelujah to God Almighty. And he must win the battle. And so we see this first thing that John saw and heard that's meant to bless you and me as we hear them and read them and keep them, knowing that the time is near. John heard three hallelujahs. Secondly, John heard a greater hallelujah because of the wedding of the Lamb to his beautified bride. Let me say that again. Number two, John heard a greater hallelujah because of the wedding of the Lamb to his beautified bride. Let's read the text together in verse six. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as a sound of mighty thunder saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Who are called? Then he said to me, Who are called to the marriage? I'm sorry, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage, supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow slave and servant of your brethren who have uh, the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here we see a greater hallelujah that, sets off the wedding of the Lamb to His beautified bride. Notice in verse 6, it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And then there's added added descriptions as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. The NIV talks about peelings. It's like there's a great voice and then there's peelings of thunder. The idea seems to be that this is a much louder hallelujah than the previous three hallelujahs. And then they add to that, for the Lord omnipotent or almighty reigns. This God, this Lord, he's not an aristocrat. He doesn't just rule, it's not a rule of the few few, like the beast. He's not an autocrat just getting his authority by independent power. This quite literally is called the Almighty or Pantocrator. Pantocrator is actually a name that comes directly from the Greek that was used by the early church to speak of Christ's omnipotent power and right to rule. Pantocrator. Everybody say Pantocrator. Pantocrator. That's different from an autocrat, an aristocrat. Jesus Christ is the Pantocrator. He is the omnipotent. He is the one who must rule. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice, And give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. We've been waiting for this marriage for quite a long time. Right now as the church, we are in this betrothal period. We've been betrothed to the Lord following the Jewish uh, model of marriage. And we're waiting for Christ to return. But there's coming a time when the marriage supper of the Lamb will be instituted. Wiersbe has this to say, quote, Today, the church is engaged to Jesus Christ, and we love him even though we've not seen him. One day, he will return and take his bride to heaven. At the judgment seat of Christ, her works will be judged and all her spots and blemishes removed. This being completed, the church will be ready to return to earth with her bridegroom at the close of the tribulation to reign with him in glory. This is the bride of Christ. One translation calls it, the wife has made herself ready. This reminds us of John the Baptist when he came on the scene. He said, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. We will move as a bride of Christ out of a betrothal engagement period into the actual marriage ceremony. And notice the text that says that the wife has made herself ready. Ready. How did she make herself ready? Well, the clue is in verse eight. She made herself ready, verse eight, and it was granted to uh, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. The saints, the bride makes herself ready with the garments that have been provided for her by Christ himself, which represent the righteous acts of the saints. Notice the balance here between the bride making herself ready, but her garments being provided by the Lord himself. By way of illustration, I'm sure many of you have probably experienced this on Easter morning. You know, uh, when our kids were little, My wife would go out and buy special Easter clothes for the kids, go out and and, and search for these clothes, and then would lay them out for the children and tell them to get dressed and uh, wake them up and get them ready for church and then to go out and do all of our festivities for the day. What did the children have to do? Did the children have to go out and buy the clothing? Did the children have to go out and earn the money? Um, They just went in and they put on the clothes provided by their mother. And then they come out and then we just dawn over them. We we act like they did something special by putting their clothes on, right? We take pictures of them. And we get all excited about how cute they are. But really all of the work was done by the parents. The kids merely put the clothes on. And that is the picture that we see here that it's been granted to the bride to be arrayed in fine linen and clean and bright. And we make ourselves ready by simply putting on the clothes. This is the same idea that we see back in Ephesians 2.8, where Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, what, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He saved us by grace and he's even prepared the works beforehand that we should walk in them. This also almost definitely harkens back to Isaiah 61. Where the Lord says, "I will or Isaiah says, "I will greatly rejoice in the Lord; my soul shall be This is verse 10 of Isaiah 61 by the way. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. God causes righteousness to spring forth before all nations. And so this bride... The lamb is bringing the bride to himself, and she is making herself ready with the garments that have already been provided by the bridegroom. Let's ask ourselves a question. How is it that we can make ourselves ready? Well, first of all, you want to make sure that you're actually part of this thing called the bride, you want to make sure that you're in the bride and that you are ready for the wedding by believing in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins. He lived the perfect life that you could never live. He was raised from the dead and he's coming again. And you believe by faith. You, you, you call upon him to save you from your sins. Remember, there's that parable in Matthew 22 where somehow someone gets into the wedding feast who did not have a wedding garment. And the, the Lord of the feast says, what are you doing here? And there's no compassion at that point. This person is thrown out hand and foot to, be, to go into weeping and gnashing of teeth because they did not have the wedding garment on. After death, there's no more opportunity to get your wedding garment. That is a pre-death event. You call upon Christ before death. But once you have, the by faith, the wedding garment, we, we have been accessed. We've been given it. It's been granted to us. And, and we continue in this garment by looking to our righteousness, looking to Christ, and then crying out to the Lord to enable us to walk in the works that He has already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, uh, 2 Th- uh, Corinthians 7 says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, prefer- perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Once we know that we've been dressed in the righteousness, we go and we put on our garments on a daily basis, and we walk and perfect in holiness in the fear of God. In the same sense, we've been provided the righteousness of Christ and the commensurate works that He has prepared beforehand, and we go out in the power of the Spirit to walk in them. Now, notice verse 9 who is blessed according to verse 9? Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Blessed are those that are invited. We should be inviting people to this marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm not going to get into the particulars on who are those who are invited and who are those that are part in the Lamb right now. You can read Wearsby on that. But these are true sayings. What John is revealing to us, he has seen, he has heard and those that read them and hear them and keep them will be blessed. But notice, after this incredible scene of hearing four Allelujahs, of, of looking at the worship that is going on and viewing uh, the bride and all of her beauty, what does John do in verse 10? And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is not the lamb, this is the angel But he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow slave. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If we're not careful as we look out, uh, even at the bride of Christ and even at the teachers of Christ, as we look out and we consider the the amazing things that God is doing with His people and through His pastors and and His apostles, there can be a temptation to bow to them, to idolize people that are just creatures and servants rather than to look to the coming lamb and warrior. And so John is gently rebuked by the angel to, to look to Christ and to realize that what's the true spirit of prophecy? What's the essence of prophecy It's the gospel. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. That is what we're looking to. Don't look to an angel. Don't merely look to men. Look to Jesus Christ. Let me just say at this juncture that any theology and any philosophy that does not leave you looking to the testimony of Christ is not worth its weight in salt. If you're looking at a political system, if you're looking at a philosophical system, if you're looking at a theological system that does not leave you gazing at Christ, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Look to Christ. If your philosophy, if your politics, if your theology is not causing you to fall more in love with Christ, if you find yourself bowing to the philosophy, bowing to the system, bowing to the man or woman instead of Christ, get rid of that idolatry. That is not going to bring you blessing. That is not going to bring you happiness. Repent of it. But no, there is a gentle rebuke here, and we can repent of our idolatries, those of us in Christ, right? It's about Jesus. And this Jesus must win the battle. So we've seen four hallelujahs now. We've seen three hallelujahs from the great multitude. We've seen another hallelujah that that uh, celebrates the wedding of the Lamb to his beautified bride. Thirdly, John saw the king of kings coming from heaven clothed for judgment and warfare. This really seems to be the highlight of the text. John saw the king of kings coming from heaven clothed for judgment and warfare. Let's read it together starting in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat in him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it He should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe, on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What did John see? He had heard two things in the first 10 verses. Now he sees heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. We see the the lamb coming on a white horse. The first time Christ came, it was on a donkey. But this is on a white horse. It's not the white horse that the false Christ was riding in Revelation chapter 2. Christ comes like a Roman conqueror. He comes to deal with Satan, the usurper, and all of his followers on a white horse of victory. The text says, and he who sat in him is called faithful and true. He's not unfaithful like the Antichrist who broke the covenant with Israel. He's not false by the, like the false prophet who rules by means of deception and idolatry. This Christ is faithful and true. And what he hears, what we hear from him, we can bank on. And notice it says, and in righteousness he judges and makes War. He comes as a judge and he comes in his second advent as a warrior. Notice how this warrior is described starting in verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This no doubt speaks of Christ's omniscience and his ability to judge with absolute precision. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We, you and I, cannot see everything clear, but he can. He can see everything clear. Those of you guys that have been around for a while, you guys, we've seen this kind of stuff before. I remember watching the O.J. Simpson trial and having certain opinions about that. And I had friends that had these opinions, and I had other friends that had different opinions. People watching the exact same stuff coming to completely different opinions. We've seen the same thing throughout history. The people will watch the same event. If we were to see an accident here in the parking lot, and all of us saw that accident, you would probably have different perceptions on how we should interpret the event. When Jesus comes, His eyes are like a flame. And he judges with absolute precision. He knows the motives and the intent of every heart. There are wheat and tares in the church. No doubt there are wheat and tares amongst us now. And Jesus has absolute perfect vision to judge that. He knows what is in the heart of every governor, in the heart of every judge, in the heart of every politician every officer of the law, and every citizen. Jesus has no perception issues whatsoever. And on his head, the text goes on to say, were many crowns. These are diadem. You might have in your picture crowns kind of like what we see in a movie. If you watch an old movie about British royalty, you might kind of be confused. Really, this is Uh, the eastern type of Persian crown, a diadem that would be more like a headband overlaid with gold and pearls. And as you stack on many diadems, it would form something that would look more like a turban. On his head were many diadems. Earlier in the book, we see that the red dragon, the devil, had seven diadems on his seven heads. The beast had seven diadems and ten horns I'm seven heads, ten horns, and ten diadems on his heads. And Jesus has many diadems, at least 17, and probably what we're talking about is way more than that. He is the king of kings. This symbolizes his absolute power and right to reign. As the hymn says, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. It goes on to say that he had a name written that no one knew except himself. This is really interesting and befuddling that John could perceive that it was a name, but he could not discern it. Probably similar to what Paul heard when Paul went to the third heaven, so to speak, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said there were words that were inexpressible that he could not even utter. The Bible speaks that Christ has a new name. It talks about it in Isaiah 62 and that there's a new name that he's going to give to us. And whatever this name is, we don't know any more about it other than the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit take pleasure in this new name. Jesus knows his name and he feels no necessity to tell us his name. There are things that God pleasures himself in that he does not have to reveal to us. You know, there's caves on Mars that you and I have never seen, but God knows them, and He takes pleasure in them. There's no doubt creatures way down at the bottom of the ocean that you and I have never even seen, and yet that God has always known it's been there, and He takes pleasure in it. And Christ has a name that no one knows except Himself, and He glories in that name. But there are other names, there are other things that are spoken of in this description of our coming Lord. Verse 13, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is probably not the blood of the cross. This is the blood of warfare as follows. This is a, a, a premonition of what's to come. It's just dipped in blood right now, but it is going to be soaked in blood in a moment. And his name is called the Word of God. This is one of the names, many names, that we do know about in this context. You know, you would have no idea what I'm thinking unless I open up my mouth. What am I thinking right now? You don't know unless I say Micah, right? I was just thinking about Micah. But once the words come out of my mouth, I've now revealed my heart, and Jesus Christ is the revelation of the heart of the triune God. He is the Word of God. Uh, he is the expression of the Father, and the Word is made up of letters. Wiersbe says, And Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the divine alphabet of God's revelation to us. Furthermore, we see in verse 14 that the armies in heaven are clothed in fine linen and and are white and clean. This may may very well be the bride that is coming now as armies, or it may be angelic armies that are coming to help uh, Christ defend the bride, following him on white horses, 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Swords are not meant for mercy. Swords are meant for killing. This is a killing passage. As it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and then the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Jesus comes to destroy It goes on to say that with it, that is with the sword, he should strike the nations. This is not a literal sword, obviously. This is Jesus who can merely utter the word die, and the Antichrist and his armies just turn to dead bodies. He who created the world with a word will bring judgment with merely a word. The text further goes on to say he himself will rule them with a rod, Of iron. And I want to suggest to you folks, and you can research this on your own, that this is not a rod of correction. That time is past. This is a rod of iron, an instrument of judgment. A father may discipline his child with a wooden paddle. This is no wooden paddle. Jesus utilizes a rod of iron. This rod will inflict irreparable damage as is seen in the next image. He will break the pottery. He himself, the text says, treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. This is a reference, no doubt, to Isaiah where God is spoken of as a judge that is, is trampling upon the grapes of wrath that will come up and bloody his robe and soak it with blood. He is called king. And then verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name that is discernible. This name is king of kings and lord of lords. This is either uh, a name that's written on the robe and the thigh or it is written on the robe that is draped around the thigh as Vincent word studies said. And if it's in Vincent's word studies, it must be true. So what we see here is is John sees the king of kings coming from heaven clothed in judgment and warfare, and we see Christ's absolute right and ability to execute justice with precision, no perceptive problems whatsoever, and he will bring vengeance upon the dragon, vengeance upon the beast, the false prophet, and all of those who follow him for the sake of his bride. He will defend. Let's look at a fourth thing. John saw an angel standing in the sun announcing the great supper of God. Let's read that text together, verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying Uh, to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. What does John see? He sees what's called the great supper of God. An angel is standing in the sun, and he cries out with a loud voice, and he's calling for the birds. I like the King James, the fowl. He's calling for the fowl to fly in the midst of heaven, saying, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. This is no doubt contrasted with the marriage supper of the Lamb. You've had the harlot contrasted with the bride. You've had the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now you've got the supper of the great God. This is what's called in chapter 16, verse 13 and following, the battle of Armageddon, the battle of the great day of God Almighty, the Pentocrator. Notice how this is described and previewed, that the birds would eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those that sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Just as the bride will be made up of those who are free and slave and small and great, God will be no distinguisher of persons. There is no partiality with God. So Christ in His judgment will not be a distinguisher of persons. There will be no partiality with God. He will judge the the captains. He will judge the political leaders. He will judge the slaves. He will judge the masters. He will judge the small and great equally. He will judge them all who have dared to stand up against His name and those who have threatened his bride. He must win the battle. Five things that the beloved apostle John saw and heard, which will bless us if we read them and hear them and keep them, knowing the time is near. We've seen four of those things. Let's look at the last one. John finally saw the beast in all his regime, defeated and judged by the Lord of Lords. John saw the beast in all his regime, defeated and judged by the Lord of lords. Look at the text with me, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And and these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds, all the fowl were filled with their flesh. What does John see? What is the outcome of this war? He sees a beast. This is the Antichrist. He sees the kings of the earth, the system that follows the Antichrist. He sees their armies, the political systems gathered together to actually make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, no doubt the bride of Christ. There is a a great battle here between Christ and his bride, and really this is not a battle. This is an execution. This is an execution that is laid out before us on the pages of Scripture. Notice Christ's tactics. Well, first of all, in verse 19, who's the aggressor here? Who's the aggressor? The beast, the kings, the armies, they gather together to come make war. They refuse to bow the knee, and they actually dare to come make war with Jesus Christ. And so what will Jesus do? What are his tactics? Verse 20 the beast was captured. The Antichrist is captured. And with him, the false prophet, the religious leader, is captured who works signs in the presence, in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So he captures the leaders. He cuts off the head. And now the system doesn't know what to do. Notice that the rest that are in the wake of the beast and the false prophet are described as those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. I'll let Pastor Milton deal with that in 2023 to help you understand what the mark of the beast is. Let me just say this at this juncture that a mark on uh, somebody's body was not unknown at this time for slaves. Um, if you guys have ever seen the movie "Gladiator," one of my favorite movies, by the way. Uh, You have the mark that's on, you know, the main guy's arm that he scratches off. It's very gross. Uh, That was not uncommon. Also, those that were part of mystery cults would take pride in putting a tattoo on their body to indicate what mystery cult and what god they were worshiping. So the original audience would probably have associated this mark with that kind of mark, a tattoo that would indicate who they worship and who they are fighting for and who they are following. Uh, if, you were to, if you do the research on your own, you'll notice that this mark of the beast is also associated with worship. Those who have this mark will worship the beast. Those who have this mark, it's also associated with economics. They can't buy or sell unless they have this mark, right? And in some mysterious sense, it's associated with the name of the beast, which is also somehow associated with the number 666, which many commentators indicate that we in our time probably have no idea how to discern that, but the future generation will probably be able to figure out how to discern those clues once they actually see the Antichrist during the tribulation. For our sakes, what we have is Christ capturing those that are uh, the leaders, leaving those with the mark with nowhere to turn and nowhere to go. The text goes on and says, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, Uh, burning with brimstone. I posted a video if you want to see what sulfur lit up fire looks like. Um, Satan, by the way, will join them a thousand years later with those that are not written in the book of life. But here at this juncture, we have the rest being killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the fowl were filled with their flesh. Isn't this... A dear, encouraging chapter. This is where if we were on the radio, you could hear some nice kind of promise type music, you know, that doesn't, has total disjunct with the actual text of Scripture. This is meant to be scary. This is meant to send fear and shivers down our spine. But more than that, this is meant to be an encouragement to the bride of Christ, whose defender is is coming back, and he must win the battle. I want to conclude with many applications, and I want to encourage you just to write down maybe some of the applications that you think speak to you. We've seen three hallelujahs because of the judgment of a false system called the harlot, the great Babylon, the mourning of the world, We've seen one hallelujah at the beautification of the bride that is married to the lamb. We've seen Christ returning as king of kings on a white horse to judgment and warfare. We've seen John identify an angel standing in the sun announcing the great supper of God God and and inviting fowl to feast on flesh. And we've seen the regime of the beast destroyed with all of those who follow him. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait till then to hear the message of Jesus. It is finished. Right now, we're in the middle of the mystery, and to us, it's confusing. We look out at the landscape and the crossroads that we're in in history, and it can be overwhelming. I don't know about you, but there's times where I just just stare into space. Like, what should I think? What should I do? There are people much wiser than me that are very confused in some of the issues that we're facing today. But just like Columbo would whistle this old man, we know who the winner is. We're not waiting for that. There might be a lot of things we're confused about, but we are not confused about the outcome. As believers, when life gets complicated when we feel our love growing cold because lawlessness abounds, when you find yourself saying, how long, O Lord? When we find ourselves fearful, troubled, and even despairing, it's important to go to the signposts that have been left for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. What should we do? I've got people coming to me. Many of you have people coming to you. What should we do? What can we do? I want to make some suggestions here as one of the pastors and shepherds here at Cornerstone. Look to Christ to justify you, giving you mercy rather than justice. That's the first thing I would tell you to do is look to Christ to justify you. Because truth be told, if we all got justice, every one of us here would be with those with the mark on the forehead and the right hand we would all be executed by the sword that comes out of the mouth of the righteous Lamb of God because He can peer into every one of your hearts and my heart too. And if Christ were to look at your heart and my heart and judge us by what we deserve, none of us would survive. Look to Christ to justify you and give you mercy. Look to Christ to love you so that the love of Christ will compel you to go out of love and work out of love rather than legalism, guilt, and self-righteousness. There's a lot of self-righteousness in our culture right now. And the reason it's out there is because people are not experiencing the love of Christ for themselves. They haven't been brought down low to understand their own sins and brought up by the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that will compel us to go out and do ministry the way Christ wants us to do ministry rather than out of legalism, guilt, and self-righteousness. Look to Christ to grant you the ability to walk in the works that He has already prepared beforehand for you that you should walk in them. We have works to do. And guess what? The path has already been laid out before us. Look to yourself before you look to others. As Jesus told Peter when he was looking back at John, he says, you, as for you, you follow me. Take the log out of your own eyes so that you can see clearly. You know, we've heard a lot, we've seen a lot about murder and this and that. The Bible says, Jesus says, you should not murder. The Bible says you should not murder. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, or if you say you fool, you're worthy of judgment. There is a whole lot of heart murder going on right now. See the bride the way Christ does in all of her beauty. I want to encourage you with this. Those of you that are in Christ, you are the bride of Christ. And you are viewed in a particular way by Christ. And he is jealous for you. And it does not make him happy when the enemy accuses his bride. And he will rise up and defend his bride in the end. And so, view the bride the way Christ views the bride. You know that false prophet in the Old Testament, Balaam, when he was being paid to curse Israel, Israel, who actually deserved cursing, the Spirit would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. And then Balaam got his, even though Israel was clearly worthy of the cursing. We do not want to join ourselves with the accuser of the brethren. We we need to become who we are in Christ. Moreover, love your neighbor as you love yourself by preaching the gospel to him or her. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, a lot of us, I don't know about you, but I feel the weight and pressure and guilt that somehow I need to change the world by myself. No, I don't. I just need to give a cup of cold water to my neighbor. Christ is the one who will change the world, and then he will raise up people in history to make change, a little bit of change in this world, but we know eventually everybody's going to follow the beast, the false prophet, the Antichrist, and then Christ will win, but the Lord does give his cups of cold water through people like Branch Rickey as he works with Jackie Robinson in baseball, George Washington Carver, Adala Equiano, the other name is Gustavus Vassa, one of my favorite Uh, characters in early American history, English history, John Newton, William Wilberforce, the list could go on and on. I think of my brother, Alvin Davis, as we've been dialoguing as elders, realizing that these are not easy issues. Alvin had this to say. And by the way, Alvin's mother, Miley, had her celebrated her 100th birthday yesterday Miley, born in 1920, has has been a a long-standing citizen here in Riverside, and they were part of the civil rights movement back in the 50s and 60s. They've seen a lot of change in Riverside. She saw her, her, her son go play baseball for a league that used to not allow blacks. She saw her son marry a white woman, and there were people on both sides of the family that weren't overly happy about that. Alvin had this to say in one of our meetings recently. Quote, we need to remember at Cornerstone to celebrate the good. When we identify things in the body that should not be there, we deal with it biblically. We already have the foundation. We have the answer. Any answer other than Jesus Christ is a band-aid on a system that is controlled by the devil. The horizontal solution will not eliminate the problem. Don't fight a losing battle. Join the winning side. And I agree with Alvin Davis. Don't fight a losing battle. Don't don't join hands with Belial. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Join the winning side. Join Christ. Join His bride. Which side of history will you be on? Will you be on the side of the great harlot or the bride of the Lamb? Will you be in the beast regime or with the king of kings? Will you be at the marriage supper of the lamb or the great supper of God? Will you be on the right side of history? What determines if you will be on the right side of history? I'll tell you what determines whether you're on the right side of the history. It's not whether you're good enough. It's not whether you've done enough works to outweigh your, your bad works. You'll be on the right history if you know that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He lived a perfect life that you failed to live. He's given you His perfect righteousness, and He's left you His Holy Spirit, and He's prepared the works beforehand that you should walk in them. If you believe in and experience the love of Christ, you will be on the right side of history. Let's bow in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you so much for your word. These are confusing times. We would do well to acknowledge and admit the challenges before us, that there are issues that are very big and very difficult for us to manage and understand. Lord, we are merely finite men and women that have limited knowledge, limited perceptive abilities. We're still hampered by the devil and the world and our own flesh. Our minds sometimes are warped by our own remaining sin. Lord, forgive us for cocky confidence in our own perceptions. Humble us, Lord. Help us to see that we We do not have the eyes that you have. We do not have the handle on history that you have. We do not have the knowledge and the ability to judge and discern things the way you do. But we can humble ourselves before you, and you promise to lift us up. Your word tells us that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And the good news is, is that when we proud sinners come and ask you to humble us, you'll do that too so we ask, Lord, that you would humble us. We ask, Lord, that you would make us a bride that looks to you, that we look to our righteousness. And Lord, that through your spirit, that you would grant us a greater ability to think the way you think in the word of God. And that you would grant us a greater ability to listen, to be slow to speak, quick to listen. That you would grant us wisdom that comes from above, not the demonic wisdom from below that leaves us in bitterness and strife. Lord, grant us repentance. Grant us the ability to see our own sins, to take the log out of our eyes so that we can help our brothers and sisters take the little specks out of theirs, that we might be able to offer cold cups of water to one another as we love our neighbors, recognizing that you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. All God's people said, amen.